Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Chad Bown, the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and your host for this week's show. This episode is about the steel and aluminum deal announced between the United States and the European Union on October 31st. Here's President Joe Biden. Here's what this uh, deal does. It immediately removes tariffs on the European Union on a range of U.S. products and lowers costs to American consumers. It ensures strong and competitive U.S. steel industry for decades to come and creates good-paying union jobs at home. And, and demonstrates how by harnessing our diplomatic and economic power, we can reject the false idea that we can't grow our economy and support American workers while tackling the climate crisis. We're going to explain what President Biden means when he says the deal immediately removes tariffs on the European Union. Not surprisingly, it's a bit more complicated than that. And beyond lifting of the tariffs, there was a second part that Biden referred to on tackling the climate crisis. Here's European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Thank you very much. Um, And I'm also very pleased to announce that, Mr. President, you and I, we have today agreed to suspend the tariffs on steel and aluminium and to start the work on a new global sustainable steel arrangement. And this marks a milestone in uh, the renewed EU-US partnership. And it is our global first in our efforts to achieve the decarbonization of the global steel production and trade. It is a big step forward in fighting climate change. To explain all this, I'm not going to be joined this week by my normal co-host, Samea Keynes. My sincerest apologies. No worries, Samea. We'll catch up with you later. Instead, I will be joined by my Peterson Institute colleague, Katie Russ. Katie's also a professor of economics at the University of California, Davis. Hi, Katie. Hi, Chad. I'm thrilled to be here with you this week. Where the tariffs came from. To understand the US-EU deal today, we need to go back about 20 years. The early 2000s were the last time there was a massive wave of US and global tariffs in the steel industry. Then too, there were concerns about industrial overcapacity. But in the years that followed, things changed. And by things, of course, in trade, that is often code for China. China went from being a relatively minor producer 20 years ago to now making more than 50% of the world's steel and aluminum. When China was growing at an average of 10 or 12% a year, all that steel and aluminum production was not a problem. China's domestic market absorbed a lot of its steel production, with waves of public infrastructure projects and private construction propelling demand for metals. But over the last decade, things really changed. China's economy started to slow down, but its steel production did not slow down. More and more Chinese steel ended up being exported to the rest of the world. Since China is a big producer of steel, you just said it accounts for half of world production, that puts pressure on competitor sales in foreign markets because they still move the global price. In countries like the United States, that new competition from China meant lots and lots of new tariffs being imposed on China. Special tariffs that are, that are called anti-dumping or, or countervailing duties, anti-subsidy tariffs. In the U.S. case, those special tariffs had basically stopped all imports of steel and aluminum 
from China from coming in directly by 2017. But the steel and aluminum imports continued to come in. It was just from other sources. They kept coming into the United States from Europe, from Canada, Japan, and and a lot of other places. And so that's the backstory. Massive Chinese production, increasing Chinese exports of steel, flooding global markets. The U.S. stops imports from China, but that doesn't really change the effect of the Chinese supply on steel prices in the global market, which means lower steel prices in all countries. And then enter Donald Trump. As a candidate for president, we all know Donald Trump had campaigned against trade, campaigned against China, threatening to impose all kinds of tariffs, including on steel. And in April of 2017, and so this is nearing the 100-day mark of the administration, and in the United States, we have this weird thing with all new administrations. The 100-day mark is is when they know the media is going to start paying attention and, and asking whether they've accomplished anything yet. Well, that's when things start to get weird. The Trump administration announces two investigations into imports of steel and aluminum. That's not the weird part, though. There's historically been loads of protection in those sectors. What was weird was the law under which they were actually doing these investigations. They chose a national security law. This is Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. They're going to look into the question of whether imports of steel and aluminum are a threat to U.S. national security. Use of this law was something really, really new. And 10 months later, on March 1st, 2018, President Trump's tariff announcement came. It'll be 25% for steel. It'll be 10% for aluminum. And it'll be for a long period of time. I remember that day. Where were you, Chad, when that happened? I think I was in my office sitting in front of my computer, um, but I agree. The, the world has, has has not been the same since. Now, it turns out the details of President Trump's policy didn't quite match that headline. President Trump did impose tariffs on steel and aluminum from a bunch of countries, but for the EU, Canada, and, and a couple of others, Trump gave them a chance to negotiate a deal with him. Some countries took him up on it. South Korea, Brazil, and Argentina, they agreed to quotas, essentially accepting limits to the volume of their exports, and in exchange, they wouldn't face U.S. tariffs. But the European Union just wouldn't agree. And unable to reach an agreement, on June 1st, the U.S. imposed its national security tariffs on about $7 billion of European exports of steel and aluminum. Europe immediately retaliated with tariffs on $3 billion of U.S. exports, including Harley-Davidson motorcycles and bourbon from Kentucky. The EU also filed a WTO dispute against the U.S. tariffs, asking WTO to rule on whether metals imports were actually a threat to national security. Do tariffs work? Tariffs are supposed to protect the domestic industry from foreign competition. To see if that was the case, we went and looked at the data from before and after the Trump administration's steel and aluminum tariffs going into effect. The first thing we looked at was, of course, capacity utilization, or how much of a plant is actually running at any point in time. The Trump administration argued that in order to stay profitable, the steel and aluminum industries really needed to be operating at at least 80% capacity, and they weren't doing so before the tariffs. For steel, President Trump's tariffs were followed by a period of capacity utilization that did increase above 80%. 
But for primary aluminum, it never really got there, peaking at around 64%. For prices and in production, the data for steel and aluminum are also somewhat mixed. Yes, metals production in the U.S. did increase after the tariffs went on, but not by nearly as much as, as prices went up. And prices going up presents a problem. While high steel prices are, are good for steel-making companies, they're bad for steel-using companies because that means higher input prices, which increases their costs. And for every job in the U.S. steel industry, there are about 20 people working at companies that really use steel intensively. That puts those American companies at a disadvantage since their foreign competitors do not have to pay the extra tax on their inputs. Take American automakers. They worried that tariffs would push up costs, increasing the prices they have to charge on their cars. Ford, who don't forget, has to worry about cars made in Japan or Europe, where there is not this kind of tariff, said the tariffs reduced their profit by $1 billion. There was also this huge wave of metal-using companies asking to be excluded from the tariffs. By January 2020, the Commerce Department had to sort through nearly 100,000 requests to be exempt from the tariffs. Feeling this pressure, the Trump administration extended the tariffs to also cover nails and aluminum bumpers for cars and a couple of other products. Okay, clearly we are not claiming causal evidence here because there's a lot of other stuff going on in the economy aside from the steel and aluminum tariffs. But even formal economic research has shown the importance of these sorts of effects. The tariffs appear to have had a, a positive but small impact on the metals industries themselves, but that was offset by bigger negative effects on the overall manufacturing sector, on jobs, and on U.S. export because of those higher costs of metals. But tariffs are also not just about economic arguments. There is also politics. A lot of steel is manufactured in important swing states like Ohio and Pennsylvania, a lot of those are unionized jobs and important for elections, including in the election for the White House in November 2020. Enter Joe Biden. Now, the tariffs probably had a pretty small effect on the 2020 U.S. presidential election. After all, th there was a pandemic going on. But in January 2021, we have a change in U.S. administrations. As a candidate, Joe Biden had campaigned against the way President Trump was conducting trade policy. Though he shared many of the same concerns, especially when it came to China, Biden promised that if elected, he was going to do trade policy differently. In particular, he wanted to work with allies, and especially the European Union. But before the U.S. and EU could work together on things like China, the new U.S. president needs to resolve a number of inherited trade conflicts with Europe. And so, over the first 10 months of the new U.S. administration, they do some fairly big things. They figured out how to resolve differences in the decades-long disputes over aircraft subsidies to Boeing and Airbus. They worked out a global corporate tax deal, which put off concerns the U.S. had with France and other European countries' digital services taxes on American tech firms. That meant the U.S. did not need to retaliate with the tariffs the Trump administration had been threatening. In September in Pittsburgh, a bunch of U.S. and European officials also met in person to kick off their new Trade and Technology Council. All the while, though, no deal on steel and aluminum. And this is a problem. 
the European countries are that they're big NATO allies. So they're offended by this idea that they might still be a threat to America's national security, this law under which President Trump had imposed those steel and aluminum tariffs. But economically, the European steel industry is increasingly suffering too. Since the U.S. tariffs had gone on in 2018, their exports to the United States had cratered. And since then, countries that had also been hit with tariffs, like Canada and Mexico, had reversed themselves and signed deals with the United States, accepting quantity limits on their exports in exchange for the U.S. getting rid of its tariffs. The result of all that has been that Canada and Mexico's exports of metals to the United States were mostly back to pre-2018 levels. But this wasn't the case for European steel. And so this October 31st announcement was a big deal from the European side. The October Agreement. Okay, Katie, let's dig in. What's actually in this thing? Well, to start, we should be clear. This deal is not rolling things back to pre-Trump. It's not promoting free trade in steel and aluminum, but it's still big. On steel, first they agreed to a tariff rate quota. 3.3 million metric tons of EU steel arriving to the U.S. each year will enter completely duty-free. Then they also said that all European steel that had already been granted product exclusions in 2021 by the U.S. Commerce Department, those can now enter the U.S. without tariffs as well. Now, the announcement doesn't specify how big that second group is. But the EU Trade Commissioner reportedly said in a press briefing that amounted to 1.1 million metric tons. Combined, that 3.3 plus 1.1 million metric tons means a total of 4.4 million metric tons of steel from the EU now can come into the U.S. with no tariffs. That aligns with what EU steel exports to the U.S. were on average between 2015 and 2017 and is much higher than what has been coming in lately. The European Steel Industry Association, Eurofur, they said they were pretty happy with the deal, as was the American Iron and Steel Institute and the United Steelworkers Union. Interestingly, though, both the European and American aluminum associations were not in favor of the deal. Though to be fair, those two were also not in favor of the original 10% Trump tariffs either. Though they both share concerns uh, with the U.S. government about China, Realistically, they want transatlantic free trade in aluminum and not this sort of managed trade. And in this instance, they ended up getting a quota too. Now, there were a couple of other interesting details of the agreement that that I do want to highlight. First, unlike the absolute quotas agreed by South Korea, Brazil, and Argentina for, for steel and aluminum in 2018, the EU deal is a tariff rate quota. And what that means is if, for some reason, say, demand booms, European exporters can always ship more to the United States than what's in the quota. They'll just need to face an additional 25% tariff. That's different from those earlier deals of those other countries, which were absolute quotas. They were hit with strict limits, couldn't sell to the United States anymore, even if they were willing to pay the tariff. The second thing is the US-EU agreement also got rid of any US tariffs on those European steel using products that Trump added to the list in January of 2020. Bigger picture, let's talk about other parts of the deal. The EU agreed to remove its retaliatory tariffs on Harley-Davidson's and $3 billion worth of other U.S. exports. The EU also said it would not impose the next round of tariffs that they had promised on another potential $4 billion of U.S. exports 
and those were scheduled to go in place on December 1st. The EU also suspended its WTO dispute against the U.S. national security tariffs. Ending the WTO dispute over these national security tariffs is potentially important. The the argument all along has been that politically, we don't want this dispute to have to be litigated at the WTO. It's a lose-lose for the World Trade Organization to have to rule on whether anyone's policy is protecting its national security or not. If the WTO were to rule yes, that would just give license to, to any country to impose a protectionist policy and then claim it was in their national security interests. But if the WTO were to rule no, this would feed into the narrative that the WTO's encroaching on countries' national sovereignty. The problem, though, is that this WTO dispute issue is not going away. A number of other countries, including China, Russia, Norway, Switzerland, and India, have brought the same dispute against the United States. And I checked with some lawyers, and those disputes are still ongoing. Unless the United States also figures out how to settle with all of those other countries, any one of them could force the WTO to rule on this national security issue. The other potentially big thing they said is what Ursula von der Leyen highlighted. They would negotiate a global arrangement on sustainable steel and aluminum. So not a bilateral arrangement, but a global arrangement. Who knows what this would mean? Not much detail available yet. Maybe it will mean the Europeans trying to get other countries to come around to their model on carbon border adjustments. That's a border tax for steel and aluminum. And that's what they proposed in July. Steel and aluminum are some of the most carbon-intensive industries out there, and the EU and the U.S. have agreed to talk about this. So more to come on this. Why they did this. Let's start with the economics. That's my favorite part. These tariff rate quotas are not a return to free trade. They are essentially what we call voluntary export restraints. But if free trade is not an option, For an exporting company, a voluntary export restraint can be much better than a tariff. With limits on steel exports, the price of steel in the U.S. will remain high. And that ends up working like collusion because the quota is satisfied by exporters all holding back some of their product. The exporters like this. European steel companies get the benefit of the higher price when they're selling to the U.S., instead of this extra margin going to the U.S. Treasury as tariff revenue. So while shifting from a tariff to a voluntary export restraint is bad for the U.S. Treasury and and overall U.S. economic well-being, from the perspective of the European Union, the economics of this deal makes sense. In terms of the law, though, which is another thing that the EU typically likes, it turns out VERs are discouraged under WTO rules. In fact, they're supposed to be banned under the WTO agreement on safeguards. And so as a technical nerdy WTO point, this now makes things a a little bit awkward for the EU's legal arguments because they've been claiming all along that the American steel and aluminum tariffs were safeguards and, and not national security tariffs. And it was that safeguards justification that they used to explain their retaliation back in 2018. The one other thing that I can't help wondering about involves anti-dumping. What happens in the future if some of those 4.4 million metric tons of tariff-free EU steel exports become eliminated because the U.S. industry files an anti-dumping case? As far as I could tell, there was nothing in the the announcement about that, that type of issue. And finally, in terms of what's next, 
there are still other allies out there that are being hit with, with these U.S. national security tariffs on steel and aluminum. The Biden administration announced uh, also on October 31st that it was undertaking consultations with, with other friends like Japan and the U.K. So maybe we will also see the, these sorts of tariff rate quotas being extended to them sometime soon as well. Okay, Katie, let's wrap this up by talking about big takeaways. Good or a bad deal? Well, it's encouraging to see the U.S. and the EU work together and come to an agreement after such an extended conflict. I mean, the agreement may not be perfect, but it removes a major obstacle to forward progress on other issues that both of them are concerned about, like China. But a big question for me is, will it reduce costs for U.S. companies who use steel and aluminum? There has been a huge run-up in steel and aluminum prices over the last couple of months. So will this be enough to help American manufacturers who rely on steel and aluminum for what they make? You know, the tariffs on steel from the EU will be gone, but the quotas by design also work to keep the domestic prices high. I would agree with, with all those points. For me, the big lingering question is whether this gets the world closer to resolving issues the U.S. and EU jointly have with China that neither the U.S. or EU can tackle on its own. Or is this the two of them giving up and, and attempting to create a world with, with two different economic systems? One system that is less carbon intensive, less state interventionist, and that would end up with one metals market that would include the U.S., EU, and other like-minded economies. And then a second that would include China and other countries that might share or, or at least not be put off by the Chinese approach. The economics of that sort of market segmentation would be incredibly hard to pull off, but in theory, maybe some of it would be possible. But the fact that we live on only one planet means that for climate purposes, we can't really have two different carbon intensity clubs. On climate especially, the three of them have to work together. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Katie Russ at the Peterson Institute and University of California, Davis, for co-hosting this episode with me. Thanks for having me, Chad. Thanks also to my Trade Talks co-creator, Samaya Keynes. My sincerest apologies. Thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bown. And I'm at Katie Russ. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. 